0: I want to begin with just a question, really a twofold question, which is up on the screen right now. And you have to forgive me. I'm doing my best to be the clicker guy, too. I'm learning. I think I did all right in the first service, so we'll try to continue that. But the question is uh, Who is the gospel? Twofold question. Who is invited? And we find that in um, Acts chapter 11. To really start answering this question, I think we have to go back to the beginning of Acts. And don't worry, I'm not going to attempt to do a survey of the whole book of Acts up to this point. You've been doing a, a series, and I'm sure it's been great up to this point. But um, I want to at least go back to what I think is the key verse to the entire book, the pivotal verse, the verse that the whole book hangs on, really the outline of the whole book. And that's um, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And I have it up on the screen. Um the resurrected Christ stands with his disciples now turned apostles and he looks at them and he says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus makes it clear. The gospel is headed out. The good news of the reign of the resurrected Christ is headed out. It's going from Jerusalem out to Judea Out to Samaria and Jesus says eventually it's going to the ends of the earth and it's going to happen Jesus says this is going to happen it's going to happen through witnesses he says you're going to witness you're going to tell you're going to testify about what you've seen because that's what a witness is somebody who testifies about what they've seen you're going to go and you're going to tell people but it's through the power of the spirit you're going to tell people what you've seen and heard the gospel the good news of the reign of the resurrected Christ is headed out And God is inviting these witnesses to take it to the ends of the earth. And so with this as a starting point for the book of Acts, we need to have the expectation that this is what God has his sight set on. That Jesus has a mission, and that mission is for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. But that mission really didn't start here. The the reality is that God has had his sight set on all nations for quite some time. So I just want to go backwards just a little bit before we get back into the book of Acts. Um, First of all, just consider Abraham. So if we go all the way back to Genesis, consider Abram or Abraham for a second. God comes to Abram and he says, I want you to leave everything, your country, your people, your father's household, and I want you to go to a land that I'm I'm later going to show you. And he says, this is what my promise is to you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And, say it with me, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God makes a promise to Abram to make him into a family, which we know from that story is a huge promise, because that was not an easy task. And from that family, he's going to make a nation, the nation of Israel. And not just make a nation, but make that nation for the sake of the nations. All nations on earth will be blessed through this nation. Fast forward with that nation, Israel uh, is brought out of slavery in Egypt. God rescues them and he brings them to Mount Sinai in the desert. And God says to them at that, uh, de- at that mountain, he says, uh, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. You saw what I just did back there and how I carried you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself here to this mountain. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God brings Israel to a mountain, and he makes a covenant with them. He says, the whole earth is mine, but I'm putting you in a position in the world right now to put put me on display. As you live out this covenant with me, As you live as my partner in this world, you're going to put me on display. Well, to who? To the nations. You're going to show the nations what I'm like as we live out this relationship together. And so they're going to learn what your God is like by the way that you live in this world in this covenant with me. And as they're drawn to Israel, this treasured possession, this separate nation, as they're drawn to Israel, they're going to be drawn to Israel's God. And they're going to know what God is like, the one true God. And so God has his sight set on all nations, even by calling Israel into relationship. Fast forward to the New Testament. Here we have Simeon in Luke chapter 2, and he's standing here. Simeon is this righteous and devout man who's holding the child Jesus at the temple. And he prays this incredible prayer. Simeon was told that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah with his own eyes. And Simeon prays these words. He says, Sovereign Lord, As you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. Which is a nice way for him to say I can now die. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of, you say it, all nations. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And now Simeon is actually quoting a really important prophecy from Isaiah. And that prophecy says this. It is too small of a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to, say it with me, the ends of the earth. See, God has had his sights set on the ends of the earth for a very long time, on all nations for a very long time. So when we go back to the book of Acts, when we stand in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, And we listen to the resurrected Christ tell his apostles that you're going to be my witnesses and you're going to take my message, my gospel, my salvation from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. It should not surprise us because this has been God's mission since the beginning. God's salvation will reach the ends of the earth. And this has been God's intention. All nations, ends of the earth. And it will be accomplished by entrusting it to witnesses who are empowered by God's spirit so it should never surprise us, as we get into the book of Acts, it should never surprise us when God's salvation, or when the gospel, when the good news of the reign of the resurrected Christ shows up in unexpected places. I know Craig said that last week. It should never surprise us when it shows up in unexpected places. However, as the story unfolds today, there are certainly going to be people who are questioning whether what is happening is from God or whether certain people have access at all, and that's where I want to begin. Now, one more quick note by way of background. Um, Our passage today is Acts chapter 11, all right? Acts chapter 10 comes before Acts 11. Seminary taught me that, but what I mean by that is uh, Acts 10 is really important. Now, you studied Acts 10 last week, and Craig already warned you that this week is kind of a repeat or a doubling of the passage, but we have to address that because it's important. Um, I think that Acts chapter 10, the passage that you studied last week with Peter and Cornelius, I like to think of it as like the hinge of the entire book of Acts. And what I mean by that is before Acts chapter 10, before Peter goes to Cornelius' house, what we see is that mostly Jews, but some Gentiles are putting their faith in Jesus. And then when Peter goes to Cornelius' house... After that moment, it's like an entire hinge of the book swings. And now what we're going to see is mostly Gentiles, with still some Jews, are going to start putting their faith in Jesus. Next week, you'll see the Church of Antioch, which is a cosmopolitan Gentile church. It explodes. And so something incredibly important. Uh, Craig last week said that uh, Acts chapter 10, the story of Cornelius, is the heart of the book of Acts. Um, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright said it this way on why the story is repeated. He said, We can only conclude that for Luke, the admission of Gentiles into God's people, reformed around Jesus without needing to take on the marks of Jewish identity, was one of the central and most important things that he wanted to convey. So in other words, whatever happened at Cornelius' house was not supposed to stay at Cornelius' house, but it was so significant that it actually bears repeating in our passage today. Luke uses up precious real estate on his scroll to retell a story. And so we have to ask, why was this story so important? That's our goal today. Okay. I would actually love to read Acts 11, 1 through 18, the entire passage. Um, I would actually love to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word if you're able. And if you're not, just stand uh, in heart. So again, I'm going to be reading Acts 11, 1 Verses 1 through 18. The apostles and the brothers and sisters who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter began to explain to them step by step, I was in the town of Joppa praying, and I saw, in a trance, an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners from heaven, and it came to me. When I looked closely and considered it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth, the wild beasts, the reptiles, the birds of the sky. I also heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, I said, for nothing impure or ritually unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice answered from heaven a second time, What God has made clean, you must not call impure. Now this happened three times, and everything was drawn up again into heaven. And at that very moment, three men who had been sent me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me to accompany them with no doubts at all. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we went into the man's house He reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa, call for Simon, who is also named Peter. He will speak a message to you by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came down on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he also gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? And when they heard this, they became silent and they glorified God saying, so then God has given repentance resulting in life even to the Gentiles. It's God's word. You be seated. All right, so if we go back to verse one, uh, word is spreading very quickly about what happened in Cornelius' house when Peter shared the message, and Gentiles had also sorry, Gentiles had also received the word of God. Uh, the word also there is no small word. Right? Up to this point, this had been a largely Jewish movement. Jewish people putting faith in Jesus as their Messiah, and then all of a sudden, now also Gentiles and there's a lot of questions when also happens certainly a lot of questions with this also okay also gentiles what about the separation what about the fact that they eat different things than we do what about the fact that they're unclean what about their past what about their idolatry wouldn't the separation just be a whole lot easier it certainly would be a whole lot more comfortable and peter is fresh off of his trip to cornelius's house and he heads back to jerusalem And he had to also learn what also means. In your passage last week, it sounded something like this. Peter said, I now realize that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation or all nations the one who fears him and does what is right. Peter had to come to a point where he realized that God accepts from every nation the one who fears him. Peter had to move on that. And he wasn't there. And he had to move on that. And now he can't wait to tell everybody what happened at Cornelius' house. He's thinking, they're going to flip when they hear what happened. He's right. Okay. Uh, verse 2. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. First off, can we agree this is the worst name for a party ever? Okay. Actually, it's important that we understand what's going on here. aside, It's important that we understand. Um, this is, some would say that this is just talking about Jewish people in general. Okay, so you have Gentiles and you have Jews. Some would say this is just talking about Jewish people in a broad category. It actually seems that more of what's happening here is there is a group of Jewish believers. So these are Jewish followers of Jesus. They put their faith in Jesus as Messiah. Okay, they're in Jerusalem, but they are continuing to hold and promote strict requirements for entry. Okay circumcision, the food, uh, the food requirements, the dietary laws, okay? And so this seems to be the same group that you're going to encounter again in Acts chapter 15 that's going to say, look, Gentiles have to become like Jews in order to become like Christians, okay? I'm going to let somebody else sort that out later on, okay? But that's what's coming. So listen again to what the criticism Peter received is. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men, or you went to Gentiles, and you ate with them. I think Peter was expecting celebration, and he received criticism instead. He was expecting people to celebrate what happened at Cornelius' house, and he received criticism instead. Of all that's been happening as the good news of the resurrected Christ is going out, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, it's going out to the ends of the earth. Of all that's happening, this group, this party, that's what they see. That's what they're focused on. You went into a Gentile's house and you ate with them. Now, absolutely, these are two pretty big no-nos in the in the Jewish rituals, right? In their um, in their purity laws. Okay, entering the home of a Gentile. Okay, and eating from their uh, table. Okay, I don't want to minimize that. These are pretty big deals. All right. But let me also ask you this: When you hear Peter taking the criticism that he's taking, do you feel like you've heard this story before? Is there almost something about this story that feels familiar? There is. Because this story has already happened in a sense. It happened earlier in the Gospel of Luke, and it happened to Jesus. Remember, Luke and Acts are two volumes of the same work by the same author. And we've almost heard this story before, and it happened to Jesus. It said all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him, Jesus, And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. In other words, as Jesus is going out in his ministry of all that Jesus is doing among the people, this is all they can see. You welcome sinners, Jesus. You eat with the wrong people. You sit at the wrong table. This is all that they can see. See, sharing a meal or sharing a table in the first century was a much bigger deal than it is today you know, getting a cup of coffee with somebody, having a conversation. It created a covenant, in a sense, between the host and the guest. It it communicated relationship. It communicated acceptance. And Jesus experiences the judgment of a strict group that believes that they had it all figured out. They believed that they knew how God was supposed to work, who was supposed to be in, who was supposed to be out, who deserved a seat at the table, And here in the book of Acts, Peter is receiving much of the same thing. He's receiving criticism by a group that they believe who who is supposed to be in, who is supposed to be out, who deserves a seat at the table. You went into the home of a Gentile, and you ate with them. Peter, what were you thinking? Peter, what were you thinking? Now, if we go back to Acts as the reader, we read this book with like a 30,000-foot view, right? We're not in the story. And so my question for you would be, are we convinced that God led Peter here? Are we convinced that God led Peter here? Do we have any concern about what Peter is doing at Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10? I don't, right? I believe God led Peter here. If the message of Jesus is headed out to the ends of the earth, this seems like a very necessary step. I'm very confident that God is the one that led Peter here. And so my question is, If we were to put ourselves in the story, if we were actively a part of the story, what might our reaction be then? Would it be so easy for us to accept this new thing that seems to be happening? Would it be so quick to be open to a guy like Cornelius or a group like the Gentiles when it seems like a major change to what's been happening? Uh, I'm not sure how you feel about the, the show The Chosen. Um, But I find it to be an intriguing look at how the Gospels may have played out in in situations. Um, In season one, there's an interesting conversation between a Pharisee named Nicodemus and his student uh, Shmuel, and Shmuel is just fun to say also. Um, So they're having a conversation, an argument about uh, Shmuel is saying that God cannot appear in a human body, in a human form. And Nicodemus says to him, so you would place limits on the Almighty, And Shmuel answers, none that are not written in the Torah, in the law. And Nicodemus adds, and if God did something that you felt contradicted the Torah, would you tell him to get back in that box that you had carved for him? And later on, Nicodemus says, I don't want to live in some bleak past where God cannot do anything new. Do you? And Shmuel asks, why is that your concern? God gave us the law. We must uphold it. And I love Nicodemus' response. He says, we can do both. Let's look to the ancient roads where the good way is and walk in it, as Jeremiah said, and still keep our eyes open to the startling and the unexpected. Let's walk the ancient paths, but never be surprised when God chooses to do something new and unexpected. And here in our text, God is doing something new in salvation history. He's doing something new among his people. It's hard for some people to accept that. So what does Peter do when he receives criticism? What does Peter do when he's not met with celebration, but he's met with criticism? He simply tells a story. He simply tells his story. And what's interesting is, this is also what Paul does at times, right? Later on, Paul is going to have his own doubters, and twice out of his own mouth, he's going to simply just retell his own story. Of of why he is on the mission that he is on. Sometimes there's power in just simply telling the story that God is working in your life. So Peter repeats the story. I'm not going to retell the whole story because that's what it was last week, but Peter repeats it. The dream of the unclean animals, his protest about eating them, God saying, Don't call anything unclean that I have made clean. The three men sent by Cornelius, the journey from uh, to Caesarea arriving at the home of Cornelius. It's interesting, he doesn't actually even use Cornelius's name in the story. And then he says this at the end of retelling the story. The Spirit told me to accompany them with no doubts at all. Which I think is interesting, because I'm sure Peter had many doubts as he's headed towards Caesarea. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we went into the man's house. Those are probably very hard words for Peter to say. Because previously, he would have prided himself for not doing that. But something is changing in Peter. Remember, I now realize that God does not show favoritism. Right? And also, notice something about the retelling of his story. There's an emphasis in it. A voice, the voice, but God, the spirit, he told me. It's like when Peter retells the story, he's saying, look, there was somebody in the driver's seat, but it was not me. Somebody else was driving along this story, okay? Now, I just want to pause for a really quick second. There's always a little bit of danger in doing this, but I want to draw attention real quickly to a potential elephant that might be in the room. And there's, the danger with doing that is you, you always are drawing attention to something that people might not even be thinking about, and now they're thinking about it, okay? But I have to think that maybe some of you are. After studying this passage with students for years, I always get this question, uh, who originally gave the purity laws to the Jewish people in order to stay separate from the Gentiles, in order to not eat the certain foods that they're not supposed to eat. Who originally gave them those laws? God did, right? Who sent Peter into Cornelius' house? Who told him to eat at the table? God did, right? And the question is, is God contradicting himself? And if I say yes, will I make it off the stage? No. No. God is absolutely not contradicting himself here, and so the question is how are we supposed to how are we supposed to accept this like what, what is our approach to this okay, and I'll just give you an illustration that I have found very helpful over the years. Um, imagine that there is a mom and she is approaching a busy intersection with her children, and she stops at a crosswalk with them and she tells her kids don't cross don't cross because she sees traffic is coming and she knows that it is not safe for them to cross don't cross but then after traffic Uh, passes by, she then tells her children, okay, you can now cross. Has this mom contradicted herself? Well, she said don't cross, and then she said cross. Those are actually opposite statements. That sounds like a contradiction to me. Don't cross, cross. Has she contradicted herself? No, she hasn't, because what changed? The situation, right? The situation has changed. There was a time in Israel's history Where separation was necessary. As they moved into the promised land. As God separated them from the nations around them. So that they could stand out and actually draw the nations to them. There was a time for what God was drawing them to in that covenant. But now as the resurrected Christ sends them into the nations. Something is changing. God is doing something new among them. So God is not contradicting them. This is a necessary step as the gospel moves to the ends of of the earth. And I just wanted to address that briefly. So Peter says, as he's standing in Cornelius' house, again, he's retelling a story. As he begins to speak, Cornelius' house is full of Gentiles. The spirit comes down, and he says, like it had on them at the beginning. What's he referring to? He's referring to back in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost that they had experienced. And he says, it, it was like Gentile Pentecost in Cornelius' house. We we experienced Pentecost in Jerusalem. Now we're experiencing Pentecost in Cornelius' house. And there's something telling about that. The same spirit. God's spirit is moving into God's people. And God's people are now Gentiles too. Peter goes on to say it like this. If then God gave them the same gift, the same spirit, that he also gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? Listen to what Peter's saying. Peter's saying, look, in that moment, I knew that if I didn't share the message with them, I would have been standing in God's way. I would have been hindering God. And his implication for his audience there that he's talking to is, you will be standing in God's way if you don't participate in what God's doing right now. God is doing a new thing. He's spreading his message to the ends of the earth, to all nations. This is what God is doing. Get on board with it, right? Um, God is doing a new thing right in front of our eyes. And we are being invited to be a witness and be a partner with it. Peter says, I'm in. And that actually took some time for Peter to be in, right? Peter said, I had to learn that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation. Peter had to move on that. But Peter says, I'm in, and you need to be too. When they heard this, verse 18, they became silent. No more argument. They can't argue with the story and with the gift and the spirit. And they glorified God, saying, so then God has given repentance resulting in life, even to Gentiles. And in the same way that also was no small word at the beginning of the passage, even is no small word at the end of the passage. Even Gentiles can be saved. Even Gentiles can be saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus, not by becoming Jewish in practice, Not by becoming righteous through law-keeping, but even Gentiles, too, are saved by grace through faith. And all the Gentiles in the room said, Amen. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, a famous passage. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. This is exactly what Peter is saying. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Now, I know we're studying Acts, but I want to take just a quick detour to follow what Paul's saying here in Ephesians. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn to Ephesians 2, because actually where Paul goes next in Ephesians 2 is almost like a perfect commentary on what just happened in Acts 11. Okay? They are like puzzle pieces together. So Paul is writing... In Ephesians to a primarily Gentile audience that is trying to learn what it means for them to be a part of the body of Christ, and in Acts, uh, excuse me, in Ephesians chapter two, verse eleven, I'll have it on the screen. Also, Paul says this to the Ephesians: Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, remember. That at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope, and without God in the world. It paints a really bleak picture of their past. That's, that's, where, that's where you were as Gentiles. But now, oops, sorry. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. for... He himself, Jesus, is our peace who has made the two groups one, has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. And his purpose was to create in himself one, next two words, new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came, he preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. What a powerful passage as you think about what has been going on in the book of Acts. So, I just want to use this passage as well as what we've been talking about in Acts just to give a little bit of application. So in Jesus, to use Paul's language, we are a new humanity. Not defined by groups, tribes, rituals, or divisions, but defined by the blood of Christ. Formerly, he says, you were this, you were Gentiles. Formerly, you were this, the circumcision party. But now, in Christ... The two groups are one, and he simply says, "You in Jesus are a new humanity. That's what Jesus has been making through His blood." And I think we have to be very cautious of the labels that we put on other people, or the labels we put on ourselves that we use to identify ourselves by groups or tribes or rituals that we want to use as our primary identity, when our primary identity is the new humanity that's been bought by the blood of Christ. that is our primary identity. One body, one piece, one new humanity bought by the blood of Christ. In Jesus, we are a new humanity, not defined by the walls we build, but by the peace made through the cross. This is one of the biggest points that Paul is making in that passage, and we can see it happening in the home of Cornelius with Peter. Um, in 1987, President Reagan stood in Berlin in the midst of a divided Soviet Union and made this famous speech. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read just a couple lines, and some of you are familiar with this. There is one. Reagan said this, there is one sign the Soviets can make that would be unmistakable, that would advance dramatically the cause of freedom and peace. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, Come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, next four words tear down down this wall. And I would say this, and when we listen to Paul in Ephesians, the cross of Christ is God's great tear down this wall speech. The cross of Christ is God's great tear down this wall speech. There is no longer Jew nor Gentile, there is no longer hostility. There is one body, there is one family. There is a new humanity, and we have to be very careful of any inclination that we have to build up a wall that the cross has already torn down. Let me say that again. We have to be very careful of any inclination to build up a wall that the cross has already torn down. And to go a step further, not only has a wall been torn down, but we've been invited to a table. We've been invited to a table. Uh, I brought a piece of wood from my garage as a prop. Um, now, here's a piece of cedar. I could use this lumber, okay? Not just this. I would need more of it. But I could use something like this to build something like this, right? I could use this to build a wall. And, and a wall is meant for separation, right? To keep people out. Put somebody on one side, put somebody on the other. Or I could use this to build something like this, right? Two very different functions, right? One meant to separate And one meant to sit at together. One meant to separate, and one meant to sit at together. When we build tables rather than walls, the challenge with tables versus walls is, it may surprise us who sits down at them. Peter sat down at a table and Cornelius joined him. Now, as Craig said last week, Cornelius had to respond in faith. And that was on Cornelius and his household. But it may surprise us who sits down at those tables. Okay? But that's what we're invited to do. When we build walls, we keep a out. When we build tables, it may surprise us who sits down at those tables. And so I would ask you, and I always ask myself these questions first. Is there anywhere right now where I'm building a wall where God is asking me to build a table instead? Is there anywhere where I'm building a wall where God is asking me to build a table instead? Peter lived his whole life with a wall mentality towards the Gentiles... Until that day, God moved him into Cornelius' house and said, look, I want you to think differently about this. And Peter said, I now realize that I can't show favoritism because God doesn't show favoritism. And instead of a wall, he built a table, in a sense. And it changed the story dramatically. For us, right? It changed the story dramatically. So in a sense, will we join Peter at that table with Cornelius? Uh, And in a few moments we'll actually be invited to a table that's been built for us. A table that used to represent a wall, but through the blood and the body of Christ now represents a table that we're invited to join through the peace brought by Jesus. In Jesus, we are a new humanity with access to the same Father and the same Spirit. We saw it at Pentecost in Jerusalem. We saw it at the Gentile Pentecost in Cornelius' house. There is unity in the spirit. There is unity in the body, one body, one peace, one spirit, a new humanity. We've been brought into that by the blood of Christ, which leads to just a closing application I have for you to consider. And I would just say we must know and remember our place in the bigger redemptive story of God. As I was just reflecting on this story, I was thinking about the fact that the majority of us are sitting here as Gentiles today. We read the story about these Gentiles accepting Jesus and the majority of us are sitting here as Gentiles today and we read stories like this in Acts and it should give us an appreciation for the story that we are a part of, this long story that's been going on well before our time that God has been telling from the beginning. And to borrow from Paul's language in Romans, God did not you know, start over, plant a new tree, call it the Gentiles and begin a new story. But he took Gentile branches, grafted them into a tree that already had really deep roots and a long history and a broken history. And he told a a new story, but a long story and a continued story and a deep story. And it's a story that's been going on before our time and will continue beyond our time as God's salvation goes to the end of the earth. And we need to appreciate the story that we are a part of, the people who have come before us who have fought for unity when there was none and respect the story, and that will keep us from being arrogant or selfish, believing as if the gospel started with us. It didn't start with us, okay? God's salvation will make it to the ends of the earth. As Paul told the Gentiles in Ephesus, there was a point where you were on the outside, but you have been brought near by the blood of Christ into a new humanity, and so I would just ask you do you remember what it was like to be brought near by the blood of Christ? Do you remember your own story? Do you remember that? And I think remembering that will help us keep a perspective and stay humble towards those who currently are on the outside, currently need a seat at the table, recognizing that the same blood of Christ is drawing them near as well as we speak. So who's the gospel for? Who's invited? It's for you. And it's for me. And it's for your neighbor. And it's for the nations. And it will reach the ends of the earth. In fact, when we flash forward to the book of Revelation in chapter 5, we see the Lion of Judah who also looks like a slaughtered lamb, and he's standing on the center of the throne. And he's surrounded by angels and people. And they're singing a song to him, and the song they're singing says, This you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Every tribe, every language every people every nation that's who the gospel's for that's who's invited to the table let me pray